Section 2 of The Romance of a Mummy and Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Terry. The Romance of a Mummy and Egypt by Theophile Gautier. Translated by F. C. de Sumacrast. Prologue, Part One. I have a presentiment that we shall find in the valley of Biban el Maluk a tomb intact, said to a high bred looking young Englishman, a much more humble personage, who was wiping with a big blue checked handkerchief his bald head, on which stood drops of perspiration, just as if it had been made of porous clay and filled with water like a Theban water jar. May Osiris hear you, replied the English nobleman to the German scholar. One may be allowed such an invocation in the presence of the ancient Diospolis Magna. But we have been so often deceived hitherto, treasure-seekers have always forestalled us. A tomb which neither the shepherd-kings, nor the Medes of Cambyses, nor the Greeks, nor the Romans, nor the Arabs have explored, and which will give up to us its riches intact continued the perspiring scholar, with an enthusiasm which made his eyes gleam behind the lenses of his blue glasses. And on which you will print a most learned dissertation, which will give you a place by the side of Champollion, Rossellini, Wilkinson, Lepsius, and Belzoni, said the young nobleman. I shall dedicate it to you, my lord, for had you not treated me with regal munificence, I could not have backed up my system by an examination of the monuments, and I should have died in my little town in Germany, without having beheld the marvels of this ancient land, replied the scholar with emotion. This conversation took place not far from the Nile, at the entrance to the valley of Biban el Maluk, between Lord Evandale, who rode an Arab horse, and Dr. Rumphius, more modestly perched upon an ass, the lean hind-quarters of which a fellow was belabouring. The boat which had brought the two travellers, and which was to be their dwelling-place during their stay, was moored on the other side of the Nile, in front of the village of Luxor. Its sweeps were shipped, its great lateen sails furled on the yards. After having devoted a few days to visiting and studying the amazing ruins of Thebes, gigantic remains of a mighty world, they had crossed the river on a sandal, a light native boat, and were proceeding towards the barren region which contains within its depths, far down mysterious Hippogea, the former inhabitants of the palaces on the other bank. A few men of the crew accompanied Lord Evandale and Dr. Rumphius at a distance, while the others, stretched out on the deck in the shadow of the cabin, were peacefully smoking their pipes and watching the craft. Lord Evandale was one of those thoroughly irreproachable young noblemen whom the upper classes of Britain give to civilization. He bore everywhere with him the disdainful sense of security which comes from great hereditary wealth, a historic name inscribed in the peerage and baronetage, a book second only to the Bible in England, and a beauty against which nothing could be urged, save that it was too great for a man. His clear-cut and cold features seemed to be a wax copy of the head of Meliager or Antinous. His brilliant complexion seemed to be the result of rouge and powder, and his somewhat reddish hair curled naturally as accurately as an expert hairdresser or clever valet could have made it curl. On the other hand, 
the firm glance of his steel-blue eyes and the slightly sneering expression of his lower lip corrected whatever there might have been of effeminate in his general appearance as a member of the royal yacht squadron the young nobleman indulged occasionally in a cruise on his swift yacht puck built of teak fitted like a boudoir and manned by a small crew of picked seamen in the course of the preceding year he had visited iceland in the present year he was visiting egypt and his yacht awaited him in the roads of alexandria he had with him a scholar a physician a naturalist an artist and a photographer in order that his trip might not be unfruitful he was himself highly educated and his society successes had not made him forget his triumphs at cambridge university he was dressed with that accuracy and careful neatness characteristic of the english who traverse the desert sands in the same costume which they would wear when walking on the pier at ramsgate or on the pavements of the west end a coat vest and trousers of white duck intended to repel the sun's rays composed his costume which was completed by a narrow blue necktie with white spots and an extremely fine panama hat with a veil rumphius the egyptologist preserved even in this hot climate the traditional black coat of the scholar with its loose skirts its curled-up collar its worn buttons some of which had freed themselves of their silk covering his black trousers shone in places and showed the warp near the right knee an attentive observer might have remarked upon the grayish ground of the stuff a systematic series of lines of richer tone which proved that he was in the habit of wiping his pen upon this portion of his clothes his muslin cravat rolled in the shape of a cord hung loosely around his neck on which stood out strongly the adam's apple though he was dressed with scientific carelessness rumphius was not any the handsomer on that account a few reddish hairs streaked with grey were brushed back behind his protruding ears and were puffed up by the high collar of his coat his perfectly bald skull shining like a bone overhung a prodigiously long nose spongy and bulbous at the end so that with the blue discs of his glasses he looked somewhat like an ibis a resemblance increased by his head sunk between his shoulders this appearance was of course entirely suitable and most providential for one engaged in deciphering hieroglyphic inscriptions and scrolls he looked like a bird-headed god such as are seen on funeral frescoes who had transmigrated into the body of a scholar the lord and the doctor were travelling towards the cliffs which encircled the sombre valley of biban el Maluk, the royal necropolis of ancient thebes indulging in the conversation of which we have related a part when rising like a troglodyte from the black mouth of an empty sepulchre the ordinary habitation of the fellas another person dressed in somewhat theatrical fashion abruptly entered on the scene stood before the travellers and saluted them with the graceful salute of the orientals which is at once humble caressing and noble this man was a greek who undertook to direct excavations who manufactured and sold antiquities selling new ones when the supply of the old happened to fail nothing about him however smacked of the vulgar exploiter of strangers he wore a red felt fez from which hung a long blue silk tassel under the narrow edge of an inner linen cap showed his temples evidently recently shaved 
his olive complexion his black eyebrows his hooked nose his eyes like those of a bird of prey his big moustaches his chin almost divided into two parts by a mark which looked very much like a sabre cut would have made his face that of a brigand had not the harshness of his features been tempered by the assumed amenity and the servile smile of a speculator who has many dealings with the public he was dressed in very cleanly fashion in a cinnamon-coloured jacket embroidered with silk of the same colour gaiters of the same stuff a white vest adorned with buttons like chamomile flowers a broad red belt and vast bulging trousers with innumerable folds he had long since noted the boat at anchor before Luxor. Its size, the number of the oarsmen, the luxury of the fittings, and especially the English flag, which floated from the stern, had led his mercantile instinct to expect a rich traveller whose scientific curiosity might be exploited, and who would not be satisfied with statuettes of blue or green enamelled ware, engraved scarabai, paper rubbings of hieroglyphic panels, and other such trifles of Egyptian art. He had followed the coming and going of the travellers among the ruins, and knowing that they would not fail, after having sated their curiosity, to cross the stream in order to visit the royal tombs, he awaited them on his own ground, certain of fleecing them to some extent. He looked upon the whole of this funereal realm as his own property, and treated with scant courtesy the little subaltern jackals who ventured to scratch in the tombs. With the swift perception characteristic of the Greeks, no sooner had he cast his eyes upon Lord Evandale than he quickly estimated the probable income of his lordship, and resolved not to deceive him, reasoning that he would profit more by telling the truth than by lying. So he gave up his intentions of leading the noble Englishman through Hippogea traversed hundreds of times already, and disdained to allow him to begin excavations in places where he knew nothing would be found, for he himself had long since taken out and sold very dear the curiosities they had contained. Argyropolis, such was the Greek's name, while exploring the portion of the valley which had been less frequently sounded than others, because hitherto the search had never been rewarded by any find, had come to the conclusion that in a certain spot, behind some rocks whose position seemed to be due to chance, there certainly existed the entrance to a passageway, masked with peculiar care, which his great experience in this kind of search had enabled him to recognize by a thousand signs imperceptible to less clear-sighted eyes than his own, which were as sharp and piercing as those of the vultures perched upon the entablature of the temples. Since he had made that discovery, two years before, he had bound himself never to walk or look in that direction lest he might give a hint to the violators of tombs. "'Does your lordship intend to attempt excavations?' said he in a sort of cosmopolitan dialect, which those who have been in the ports of the Levant, and have had recourse to the services of the polyglot dragomans, who end by not knowing any language, are well acquainted with. Fortunately, both Lord Evandale and his learned companion knew the various tongues from which Argyropolis borrowed. "'I can place at your disposal,' he went on, "'some hundred energetic fellows who, under the spur of whip and bakshish, would dig with their fingernails to the very centre of the earth. We may try, if it pleases your lordship, to clear away a buried sphinx or a shrine, or to open up a hippogeum.' On seeing that his lordship remained unmoved by this tempting enumeration, and that a sceptical smile flitted across the doctor's face, 
Argeropolis understood that he had not to deal with easy dupes, and he was confirmed in his intention to sell to the Englishman the discovery on which he reckoned to complete his fortune and to give a dowry to his daughter. I can see that you are scholars, not ordinary tourists, and that vulgar curiosity does not bring you here, he went on, speaking in English less mixed with Greek, Arabic, and Italian. I will show you a tomb which has hitherto escaped all searchers which no one knows of but myself. It is a treasure which I have carefully preserved for a person worthy of it. And for which you will have to be paid a high price, said his lordship, smiling. I am too honest to contradict your lordship. I do hope to get a good price for my discovery. Every one in this world lives by his trade. Mine is to exhume pharaohs and sell them to strangers. Pharaohs are becoming scarce at the rate at which they are being dug up. There are not enough left for everybody. They are very much in demand, and it is long since any have been manufactured. Quite right, said the scholar. It is some centuries since the undertakers, dissectors, and embalmers have shut up shop, and the Memnonia, peaceful dwellings of the dead, have been deserted by the living. The Greek, as he heard these words, cast a sidelong glance at the German, but fancying from his wretched dress that he had no voice in the matter, he continued to address himself exclusively to the young nobleman. "'Are a thousand guineas too much, my lord, for a tomb of the greatest antiquity, which no human hand has opened for more than three thousand years since the priests rolled rocks before its mouth? Indeed it is giving it away, for perhaps it contains quantities of gold, diamond, and pearl necklaces, carbuncle earrings, sapphire seals, ancient idols, and precious metals, and coins which could be turned to account.' "'You sly rascal,' said Rumpheus. You are praising up your wares, but you know better than any one that nothing of the sort is found in Egyptian tombs. Argeropolis, understanding that he had to do with clever men, ceased to boast, and turning to Lord Evandale, he said to him, Well, my lord, does the price suit you? I will give a thousand guineas, replied the young nobleman, if the tomb has not been opened. But I shall give nothing if a single stone has been touched by the crowbar of the diggers. With the additional proviso, added Rumpheus the prudent, that we carry off everything we shall find in the tomb. Agreed, said Argeropolis, with a look of complete confidence. Your lordship may get ready your banknotes and gold beforehand. Dr. Rumpheus, said Lord Evandale to his acolyte, it strikes me that the wish you uttered just now is about to be realized. This man seems sure of what he says. "'Heaven will it may be so,' replied the scholar, shaking his head somewhat doubtfully. "'But the Greeks are the most bare-faced liars. Crete mendesis,' says the proverb. "'No doubt this one comes from the mainland,' answered Lord Evandale, "'and I think that for once he has told the truth.' The Greek walked a few steps ahead of the nobleman and the scholar, like a well-bred man who knows what is proper. He walked lightly and firmly, like a man who feels that he is on his own ground.' The narrow defile which forms the entrance to the valley of Biban el Maluk was soon reached. It had more the appearance of the work of man than of a natural opening in the mighty wall of the mountain, as if the genius of solitude had desired to make this realm of death inaccessible. 
On the perpendicular rocky walls were faintly discernible shapeless vestiges of weather-worn sculptures which might have been mistaken for the asperities of the stone imitating the worn figures of a half-effaced basso-relievo. Beyond the opening, the valley, which here widened somewhat, presented the most desolate sight. On either side rose steep slopes formed of huge masses of calcareous rock, rough, leprous-looking, worn, cracked, ground to sand, in a complete state of decomposition under the pitiless sun. They resembled bones calcined in the fire, and yawned with the weariness of eternity out of their deep crevices, imploring by their thousand cracks the drops of water which never fell. Their walls rose almost vertically to a great height, and their dentilated crests stood out grayish-white against the almost black indigo of the sky, like the broken battlements of a giant ruined fortress. The rays of the sun heated to white heat one of the sides of the funeral valley, the other being bathed in that crude blue tint of torrid lands which strikes the people of the north as untruthful when it is reproduced by painters, and which stands out as sharply as the shadows on an architectural drawing. The valley sometimes made sudden turns, sometimes narrowed into defiles as the boulders and cliffs drew closer or apart. The thoroughly dry atmosphere in these climates being perfectly transparent, there was no aerial perspective in this place of desolation. Every detail, sharp, accurate, bare, stood out, even in the background, with pitiless dryness, and the distance could only be guessed at by the smaller dimensions of objects. It seemed as though cruel nature had resolved not to conceal any wretchedness, any sadness of this bare land, deader even than the dead it contained. Upon the sun-lighted cliff streamed like a cascade of fire a blinding glare like that which is given out by molten metal. Every rock face, transformed into a burning glass, returned it more ardent still. These reflections, crossing and recrossing each other, joined to the flaming rays which fell from heaven and which were reflected by the ground, produced a heat equal to that of an oven, and the poor German doctor had hard work to wipe his face with his blue-checked handkerchief, which was as wet as if it had been dipped in water. There was not a particle of loam to be found in the whole valley, consequently not a blade of grass, not a bramble, not a creeper, not even a patch of moss to break the uniformly whitish tone of the torrified landscape. The cracks and recesses of the rocks did not hold coolness enough for the thin, hairy roots of the smallest rock plant. The place looked as if it held the ashes of a chain of mountains, consumed in some great planetary conflagration, and the accuracy of the parallel was completed by great black strips looking like cauterized cicatrices which rayed the chalky slopes. Deep silence reigned over this waste. No sign of life was visible no flutter of wing, no hum of insect, no flash of lizard or reptile. Even the shrill song of the cricket, that lover of burning solitudes, was unheard. The soil was formed of a micaceous brilliant dust, like ground sandstone, and here and there rose hummocks formed of the fragments of stone torn from the depths of the chain, which had been excavated by the persevering workmen of vanished generations, and the chisel of the troglodyte laborers, who had prepared in the shadow the eternal dwelling-places of the dead. The broken entrails of the mountain had produced other mountains, friable heaps of small rocks which might have been mistaken for the natural range. 
on the sides of the cliffs showed here and there small openings surrounded with blocks of stone thrown in disorder square holes flanked by pillars covered with hieroglyphs the lintels of which bore mysterious cartouches on which could yet be made out in a great yellow disc the sacred scarabaeus the ram-headed sun and the goddesses isis and nephthys standing or kneeling these were the tombs of the ancient kings of thebes argyropolis did not stop there but led the travellers up a sort of steep slope at which first glance seemed nothing but a break on the side of the mountain choked in many places by fallen masses of rock until they reached a narrow platform a sort of cornice projecting over the vertical cliff on which the rocks apparently thrown together by chance nevertheless exhibited on close examination some symmetrical arrangement when the nobleman who was a practised athlete and the doctor who was much less agile had succeeded in climbing up to him argyropolis pointed with his stick to a huge stone and said with triumphant satisfaction there is the spot he clapped his hands in oriental fashion and straightway from the fissures of the rocks from the folds of the valley hastened up pale ragged fellas who bore in their bronze-coloured arms crowbars pickaxes hammers ladders and all necessary tools they escalated the steep slope like a legion of black ants those who could not find room on the narrow ledge on which already stood the greek lord evandale and dr rumphius hung by their hands and steadied themselves with their feet against the projections in the rock the greek signed to three of the most robust who placed their crowbars under the edges of the boulder their muscles stood out upon their thin arms and they pressed with their whole weight on the end of the levers at last the boulder moved tottered for a moment like a drunken man and urged by the united efforts of argyropolis lord evandale rumphius and a few arabs who had succeeded in climbing the ledge bounded down the slope two other boulders of less size went the same way one after another and then it was plain that the belief of the greek was justified the entrance of the tomb which had evidently escaped the investigations of the treasure-seekers appeared in all its integrity it was a sort of portico squarely cut in the living rock on the two side walls a couple of pairs of pillars exhibited capitals formed of bulls heads the horns of which were twisted like the crescent of isis below the low door with its jams flanked by long panels covered with hieroglyphs there was a broad emblematic square in the centre of a yellow disc showed by the side of the scarabaeus symbol of successive new births the ram-headed god the symbol of the setting sun outside the disc isis and nephthys incarnations of the beginning and the end were kneeling one leg bent under the thigh the other raised to the height of the elbow in the egyptian manner the arms stretched forward with an air of mysterious amazement and the body clothed in a close-fitting gown girdled by a belt with falling ends behind a wall of stone and unbaked brick that readily yielded to the pickaxes of the workmen was discovered the stone slab which formed the doorway of the subterranean monument on the clay seal which closed it the german doctor thoroughly familiar with hieroglyphs had no difficulty in reading the motto of the guardian of the funeral dwellings who had closed for ever this tomb the situation of which he alone could have found upon the map of burial places preserved in the priest's college i begin to believe said the delighted scholar to the young nobleman that we have actually found a prize and i withdraw the unfavourable opinion which i expressed about this worthy greek 
"'Perhaps we are rejoicing too soon,' answered Lord Avondale, "'and we may experience the same disappointment as Belzoni, "'when he believed himself to be the first person to enter the tomb of Menef the Seti, "'and found, after he had traversed a labyrinth of passages, walls, and chambers, "'an empty sarcophagus with a broken cover, "'for the treasure-seekers had reached the royal tomb through one of their soundings, "'driven in at another point in the mountain.' "'Oh, no,' answered the doctor. "'The range is too broad here, and the hypogeum too distant from the others for these wretched people to have carried their minds as far as this, even if they scraped away the rock.'" End of Prologue, Part 1